This expert insight session was recorded in front of a live audience on the 26th of September, 2018. The topic is school and mental health. On the panel we have Jodie Wasner, psychologist and fellow of APS College of Educational and Developmental Psychologists. Dr. Josephine Anderson, child and adolescent psychiatrist and clinical director, Black Dog Institute. Dr. Brideanne O'Day, research fellow, youth mental health at Black Dog Institute. And Adri, our lived experience representative. Chairing this evening is Dr. Vered Gordon. So to start with, Josie, I might ask you first to um, set the stage and and really just thinking about what are the common mental health conditions that would face students of school age? What are the prevalent ones? Yeah, so um, in many ways they're the uh, similar conditions that face adults because for some time now we've known that around 75% of all mental health problems start before the age of 25 and actually 50% start before the age of 15. So uh, these are problems of young people. Um, And again, they tend to increase um, with puberty, I guess, uh, for the most part, especially things like depression and um, uh, some of the uh, uh, less common disorders like uh, psychosis, and uh, schizophrenia. Anxiety disorders are more commonly, I think it's probably fair to say, start in childhood uh, and they can wax and wane um, and so they might go away with treatment and then come back again in high school or not sometimes as the case may be. And then there are also um, young people um, such as Adri who might have serious physical illnesses um, who uh, are at greater risk, we know, of developing uh, problems with their mental health as well uh, as a result of having those physical illnesses to deal with. So uh, young people obviously with um, uh, life-threatening conditions such as cancer but also um, other serious conditions such as diabetes, childhood onset diabetes and uh, asthma, severe asthma, uh, are commonly associated with higher rates of things like anxiety and depression. And so, um, Bridie, I might ask you then, in the work you've been doing, you've had a lot of conversations with parents, students, schools. What are their concerns with regard to the mental health of students? So um, in some of the work we did as part of um, what we call our Smooth Sailing Research Program, which was basically a three-year project where we designed, developed and tested uh, online school-based mental health service. And part of that work, we spent a year going around consulting with people who worked with youth or worked in the school setting about what they identified to be the primary mental health issues. Um, And as Josie said, anxiety, school counsellors reported that anxiety and depression were the most common issues that they were facing amongst that they identified in students. But they also brought up things like trauma, uh, family conflict uh, and relationships. Uh, When we talked to parents, parents also identified that anxiety um, and really things like academic performance, um, peer influence, so this um, desire to fit in was, was really how they sort of conceptualise the mental health issues in in their children. Um, 
In terms of young people, we know that the main reason that they present to mental health services is because of anxiety, depression, and then the third biggest reason is because of relationship issues. And so, um, as Josie said, we do know that anxiety disorders tend to develop in the childhood, and then the age of 15 seems to be the age of onset for for the depressive disorders and also self-harming behaviour. Um, so if we think about that in a, in a school context, we're really looking about year nine is when we're really starting to see the emergence of these perhaps uh, issues that will become chronic and they typically manifest in relationship difficulties and family conflict and self-harming behaviours. So following on from that, Jody, um, kind of a bit of a broad question really, um, what do you think the role is of school in the mental health of students? It's a very big question. Yeah. Um, I, I suppose my context as being a school psychologist in the past, and, and I think that a lot of the school psychologists I speak to, I think we would like to see something bigger happening in the schools, a more whole school approach. And I think the reality of the day-to-day -day work of a school counsellor is that you end up being in a room with lots of one-on-one -on -one stuff. I think the, the other issue is um, in terms of prevention programs, a lot of them are very ad hoc. So a year coordinator might come up to a school counsellor and say, oh, you know, there's big issues with body image or sleep problems or something. You know, go in and, and run an hour session for the year 11s. Um, and I feel as though the ad there's nothing wrong with doing it like that, but I think there's something to be said for um, perhaps cultural change in the school in which they take um, the, the mental health issue more seriously and have it as, as a genuine ongoing part of what's going on in the schools. I'm going to go even further here and say, and it's not just about prevention program. I believe very strongly when I talk about cultural change in the school about educating the staff because I think the language that adults use is very influential in terms of how we perceive what are normal feelings, you know, how, how the language we use around when a difficult feeling shows up, does that mean there's something wrong with me or is that something that's normal? And I think if we can get the adults in the young people's lives to, to have a little bit of better education about how we approach those sorts of things, then the young people themselves will know how to handle them a lot better. You know, this, this is a very big dream of mine. <laughs> um, but, you know, unfortunately, I just feel as though the little bits and pieces that are happening, they're just not quite getting where, where they need to be. So I might follow on from you, um, Adri, even before you fell ill, you mentioned that your school set quite a, a certain tone around mental health or emotional well-being. Can you talk a bit about that and maybe how the school created that feeling? Yeah, absolutely. So I went to an old boys' school uh, around a boys' high, so just down the road, and I know typically young males are often very reluctant to speak up about their uh, issues with mental ill health, their mental ill health. Um, but a testament to the school community that I was a part of, uh, mental health and emotional well-being was uh, a huge priority of ours and a priority of the teachers to instill in their students. So from uh, year eight, year nine, um, we would often have regular um, well-being classes, whether that be in the context of PE or even English um, in terms of the type of language that we can use around mental health. 
Um, it was certainly a, a subject um, that we devoted uh, considerable time with um, from a young age that allowed these young men to kind of been raised um, throughout their schooling years um, with the certain perspective that their mental ill health is something that they can devote uh, serious attention to um, in the case that it comes up again in their later years at school. And did that make a difference for you when it was time to let people know you were struggling having that in place? Certainly. So when I was diagnosed um, with cancer, I guess the one um, source of comfort that I had was that I didn't feel as much uh, reluctance as I would imagine a, a regular 17-year-old uh, outgoing male would feel um, if they were confronted with circumstances um, affecting their mental ill health. So uh, when I was diagnosed, um, right away the conversations that I had with my teachers weren't about schooling, weren't about the physical side of a cancer diagnosis. It was about how they could preserve and preserve the my mental well-being um, in the context of my schooling at the time, so the HSC year. Um, so it made for those conversations to take place a lot easier um, than I would imagine it would for a, a regular 17-year-old. But I think what I believe set our school apart was that the students also took a large role in driving those initiatives across the student body. Um, so from speaking from personal experience, I served on uh, my school's student representative council all, all the time that I was there at Randwick Boys. And a lot, of the, um, a lot of the time that we devoted as a student council, student representatives was across the uh, mental health initiatives that were being, uh, that were being done in the, in the class. So whether that meant actually leading some of the, um, some of the, some of the periods that we were addressing mental health, or running activities during lunchtime that kind of covered a lot of the themes that were being discussed in those classes. Um, it was very much a partnership between the students and the teachers that kind of set those, um, set those mental health initiatives apart, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think as well, like when you have a mental health problem coinciding with a physical health problem, it is a lot easier for school staff to offer that support because it's highly acceptable to be depressed if you have cancer. So, and I think when you have like a physical incident, this can be anything, whether it's a loss of a um, loved one or a car accident or any of the multitude of physical things that happen to you, school staff find it a lot easier to bring up the topic of mental health and initiate mental health interventions. I think it becomes more tricky for the teenager who doesn't really know what's going on, um, doesn't have a reason, um, and that the staff actually are like, I don't really know what's happening for this young person and therefore I don't really know how to help. And so it's sort of speaking back to that, you know, the crossover between having sort of physical health issues as well as mental health issues. And sadly, we're just still in a society where it is much easier uh, to talk about physical health issues and their impact on you sure, rather than yeah. the other way around. And I think even taking that one step further, it's one thing to talk about, you know, the, the kids that have emerging mental health and it's, you know, it can go a bit under the radar. But what about the ones that where it comes out in the externalising problems? So these kids are perceived as naughty or difficult or they're, they're engaging in really, really difficult behaviours and there's often very little compassion for them. I might connect with that, Josie. 
young people spend a lot of time at school, so it might be school that will actually notice there's a change or the early signs of mental health deterioration. What are some of the things that schools might notice that should alert them that perhaps this young person is starting to struggle? Yes, you're quite right. I mean, uh, schools are in a very good position um, because they generally get to know um, what to expect um, from um, young people um, in their classes over the, over the years, I think. So um, if there is a decline in um, those standards of what um, teachers would, come, would have come to expect of a young person, so a decline in their academic work, for example, is often an early um, sign of uh, poor concentration associated uh, with depression, for example. Um, a decline in attendance uh, in a young person who's normally, you know, been a very good attender at school should also raise concerns about what's going on here. You know, is there something happening at school or at home that's preventing the young person from getting to school um, like they used to? Particularly, you know, when um, teachers are aware uh, that, you know, that particular young person has always liked school and, you know, been liked at school, um, it, uh, it certainly does uh, 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 raise concerns. So I think that um, there are a couple of obvious things and then I think coming back to the change in behaviour um, is also very important. Uh, it's quite true that, um, for example, won't be any surprise to anybody here to know that, you know, boys figure much more highly in so-called externalising behaviour problems than, than girls do. Um, but sometimes that can also be associated with um, uh, a more hidden emotional disturbance or what we call internalising um, experiences such as anxiety or depression. Um, we're getting better at encouraging boys to, to speak about their feelings, but we've still got a long way to go. Um, and again, that's particularly um, sometimes, I guess, arises when um, the change in behaviour is something that's happened in high school or seems to have occurred in high school, whereas the pre-history of the young person in primary school um, and perhaps in the early years of high school, Bridie's point about, you know, year nine um, often being a, a time of a bit of explosion, um, uh, may then, you know, make people think, okay, so this is not just the way this child is. Um, uh, this is uh, obviously something has changed uh, in their life. Now, that could be biological change. We know that depression, for example, it starts to increase with incidence when people hit puberty. Um, uh, it could be other kind of biological um, changes such as illnesses, as we've talked about. Um, it can also, of course, be changes at home or at school. So if things are going badly at home for the young person, um, then that can be obviously a stressor. Um, if, um, I mean, I, there's well-described evidence that um, young people with difficult-to-treat depression uh, are likely in 40% of cases to have a parent with an untreated mental illness, usually depression as well. So that would really make things very difficult for you at home. Um, and at school, of course, where um, uh, teachers can see much more clearly, I, I suppose, what's going on 
one always thinks about um, how the peer group is going and whether there's bullying that's happening. Um, of course, these days we have bullying in cyberspace to worry about as well as bullying in the playground, um, which is perhaps a bit more obvious. Um, but uh, it's so if you think about those kinds of areas of a young person's life, school, home, and peers, you're kind of covering pretty much the, the, the you know um, uh, the bases in terms of the areas of of life that can go wrong for young people for a whole variety of reasons, but that can end up in uh, precipitating things like depression or anxiety that affects their functioning at school. And, um, and Bridie, much is often said about, you know, surely schools have an important role to play in preventing mental health problems. It's the ideal place to get in early with early intervention. What do we know about prevention programs in schools? What's out there and how are they doing? So there's a couple of key reasons why researchers like myself really think that schools are the best setting for delivering mental health. And the, the obvious reason is that we know that half of all mental illnesses are going to show their first signs in that age, and at that age they spend most of their time in school. So there's a simple just logical reason for why then you would go for the school. It's just simply because young people are there. The other reason why you go for a school setting in terms of doing mental health is that school is a structured place of learning. And we all know that a lot of the therapies that are effective for mental health require a certain structured way of thinking, homework, practice, didactic learning, reflection. And school is all about that in natural learning. So it is a natural setting for learning. And therefore, you can easily integrate therapeutic principles into school-based activities. And in addition, we know that in those high school years, it's really the time when young people start to establish role models, and most young people establish a role model in the school setting. It's either through uh, a, a teacher, a sports coach, or some adult that they model uh, some part of their behaviour from. So we, we know that they can be very effective people for reducing stigma, normalising, seeking help, uh, and actually providing a source of help. Uh, and so they're sort of the reasons why we really like to go into schools and really want to capitalise on that. And there are sort of other additional reasons uh, why the school is attractive. Schools already have frameworks for determining mental health of students, so they have very clear mandatory reporting guidelines. They also have most schools have a school counsellor already operating. Uh, schools have established connections with parents. Schools are very good at determining the social capital and political capital with parents and families. They often have the same siblings in the same school, so you can actually look at the whole family and see what's happening. Um, and in general, in the community, we identify schools as safe places for young people to be. And so uh, that is really why we want to... Uh, inject mental health initiatives into uh, the school setting. And so there's been a whole uh, portfolio of research which looks at the ways that you can use schools to not only address mental health problems but also prevent and treat them. And so the research clearly shows that you can deliver psychological interventions into school settings in lots of different ways, either through curriculum-embedded content through PDHPE 
or through additional class, you know, utilising um, wellbeing or roll call um, time periods to deliver psychological interventions. And we know that that's effective and it has an effect size um, that's similar to one-on-one therapy. So um, the evidence is there. Uh, what we don't have in Australia or anywhere else in the world is a streamlined approach. So as we said, they're very ad hoc. Uh, and I think there's problems with that. And I actually think it's the wrong way to do it because you're wasting time and money. And a lot of the things that people are actually implementing into schools have no evidence or could actually be harmful. Uh, so I think that there's enough body of evidence out there for schools to make a well-informed decision about which prevention or mental health activity they want to implement into the school. And um, following on from kind of what Josie was saying, Adria, I'm, I'm interested, you're in Year 12 when all this happened. Was there a feeling for you that you would need to stop studying? Was there a pressure on you for, to continue and do your exams? How did you manage continuing to progress through school? There was certainly a pressure um, that I actually placed on myself uh, to continue. So at the time that I was diagnosed, I was doing very well academically. I was a top performing student, the type to be the first one to class and the last to leave. I mean, schooling was something that I enjoyed considerably. So when the diagnosis happened, there was certainly pressure that I put on myself to continue performing at the level that I was before. Um, like other 17-year-olds in their final year at school, my goal was to eventually continue on to university um, and live a great life. So there was certainly a pressure that I put on myself uh, to continue performing the way that I did. And I guess the way that I managed that uh, was through a through an incredible support network. Um, the concept was raised before about having role models and, and role models that are defined within the school context. And certainly for me, my role model during this time that helps normalize the feelings and behaviors that I was exhibiting uh, was my classroom teacher, my English teacher. Um, and it was that rapport that I built with him during this particular time that helped me manage those feelings and eventually sell through to where I was able to actually sit for my final exams and graduate. So that's how I did that. And, um, and then Jody, I'll, I'll just check with you. Uh, we're hearing a lot about the role of the school counsellor. It sounds like it's multifaceted. And also I'm interested for the clinicians in the room who aren't working in the school system, how do school counsellors work with people outside the school? What is the best way for this communication to happen? It's a double-pronged question. Yeah, it's a tricky one because um, one of the difficulties about being a school counsellor is that you're accountable to the school, um, but you're also kind of a clinician. And so the, the, schools often, the school will often put parameters on how they like you to communicate. So I guess it, it depends on the individual school you're in. But I think, um, so I suppose, you know, for GPs and psychiatrists and other people in the community, the school counsellor tends to be a person who does know a lot about what's going on in the school, not necessarily only those people that they're seeing in one-to-one -one therapy. So... I know that it's not just about the therapy. It's, you're also, as a school counsellor, doing a lot of case managing. So you're not necessarily seeing someone, but you're well aware of some of the difficulties that are going on. And I think um, if school counsellors are able to um, uh, 
be that, I suppose, that liaison between what's going on outside and then advocating for that child within the school. And we found in our research that a lot of the school counsellors, they refer out. So basically they might um, do a, a session with a student and then look at how what services were available in the external community like um, specialist psychologists um, so that they could refer out. And so because they're very um, conscious that of, of their caseload, and they're trying to help as many students as possible. And on, on the flip side, there's lots of students in the school who are seeing external mental health professionals that don't have any contact with the school counsellor. So the school counsellor's really there trying to manage the needs. So some, some kids, their parents won't have the capacity to take them to a school counsellor, a psychologist, so the school counsellor step in. But if, if the school counsellor's conscious that the family can really manage this, they'll contact the family and look to refer out so it is a bit of a juggle depending on what the student requires and really what's available in the local community. And some schools have, we've worked in schools which have established a relationship with the local GP where the GP comes in twice a week and sees the students in the school. Um, we've also, I've also worked in a school where they have a very good relationship with the local headspace service, so they refer directly to, to the headspace service. So um, I've also worked in a school who is on the same street as the um, acute child and adolescent mental health services at the hospital, and so they have a phone call relationship that if any child is self-harming or in distress, they actually just walk walk them straight up to the hospital. So it really depends on the geographical location, the existing relationship with other services, um, and school expectations around what's acceptable. And I think... Um, it's really, in a way, up to the individual school counsellor to, to build those networks. You know, I remember I used to have two or three GPs in the area near the school I worked at down in Melbourne, and um, it was really, they had a, a deep interest in mental health in young people, and it was really good for me to know that I could just keep sending them there. So if you're a GP that, that has a particular uh, interest in this area, I would encourage you to reach out to some of the local school counsellors and say, you know... I'm, I'm here to liaise with you. Be great. I would have loved that. <laughs> <laughs> and Josie, as clinicians, we often need to make decisions about school participation or school absences. What are some of the things that would guide you in making those decisions? Uh, I think that um, it is a decision that you do need to think about and probably liaise with the school about before a decision is made because quite often schools do have a range of strategies that they can employ. Um, I'm thinking um, of uh, a number of uh, young people that I looked after in the past um, who were also um, obviously um, high school students um, who were able to engage in a pathways program as the um, uh, the strategy for finishing their HSC over a couple of years rather than over doing the whole load in, in the final um, 12 months um, in the context of their recovery from depression or psychosis. And that was actually a very successful strategy for many of them. For others, though, um, it may be that um, something like that could have a negative connotation for the young person, um, losing touch with their peer group, um, you know, who's going on while they're still at school or feeling that they're being um, 
uh, you know, told that they're not up to it, might buy into their kind of feelings of, you know, um, lack of self-worth that are typical symptoms of depression, for example. So I, I think I'm um, just saying that, that that kind of conversation would be, would be a good thing to have, I think, with the school counsellor. I mean, unless it's something very short-term that you're thinking about, you know, a young person um, presenting for the first time with depression, perhaps you... you um, they haven't been responding to psychological therapy and you'd want them to perhaps start on some medication. Obviously, the school should know about that um, and it may be that they need, you know, a week off while they're doing that to, to you know, be able to get back into a normal sleep-wake cycle and then be, be able to get back to school. Um, uh, so that's, that's, you know, an example where a clinician might be able to, you know, sort of make a fairly um, short-term sort of decision with the young person and their family about that. But I, I do think that um, uh, we shouldn't lose sight of how um, how positive school and how normalising uh, going to school can be for young people recovering from serious illness or coping, trying to you know cope with with the serious illness that's going to take some time. So sometimes even negotiating. Um, you know, half-time attendance or just attending subjects that they find easy uh, or just coming for half a day or up until recess or whatever it is as a way of gradually integrating the young person back to school can be really helpful because, um, as I said, it is such a normalising experience for our young people that um, it shouldn't be underestimated, the therapeutic value of just being able to, to, to do what you can at school and be, you know, with your peers as much as you can. Um, while you're recovering from an illness. And that, that's often sometimes where some schools really fall down is in the sort of reasonable adjustments around in other general teaching staff. So school counsellors can, because of their training, have a very good understanding of the impact of things like depression and anxiety on concentration, um, on memory and retention. But if you're trying to explain that to the eight other teachers that are teaching that student and saying that this particular student um, is going to have an extra two weeks on an assessment and I, I'm not going to disclose why, um, that's sometimes where it can start to become very difficult for both the counsellor, the family and the, treaty, the treatment team in working with the school because it pulls back to that whole school approach on really what is the culture towards mental health problems and some schools just really kind of don't want to approach it. They don't want to be seen as doing unfair advantage. They don't want, yeah, so it can be quite tricky. And I think probably the only mental health issue around school attendance that requires very, very careful attention is bullying. Uh, the, the research with bullying is now showing that if it's continuous and ongoing, we really should consider changing the child's school. Um, they used to think that the, the literature was all about kind of trying to keep them in the school and maintain those networks, but the research is now showing that bullying is very much at a whole school culture problem. It's not actually about the individuals, it's about the culture of the school, and you can actually have drastic differences in rates of bullying in different schools. Um, and so thinking about changing schools as possibly if the bullying is a major issue is something that you might want to give careful consideration to. Andrea, I just want to bring you in there talking about adjustments. You must have had to work around all various treatments and different days where you felt better and worse. How did that work for you? What adjustments did your school work? How was that negotiated? 
One of the, I guess, uh, major strategies that the school used to help me integrate back into schooling um, for the time that I was missing out due to treatment was actually to give me uh, averages on my assessments and exams. Um, this certainly alleviated a lot of the pressure that I had placed on myself to perform academically while also allowing me to continue going through the motions of what a regular schooling regular schooling days would look like for me if I, even, even if I wasn't going through treatment. So that was, I guess, critical in my uh, recovery, so to speak, um, that allowed me to still be with my peers, still be able to sit the exams, but also have those averages to, I guess, be the, um, the safety net um, in place there. So a lot of the teachers uh, accommodated with less amounts of homework uh, for the time that, like if they knew that I was having chemotherapy uh, in a couple of weeks' time, they would lessen the load of homework that I'd be given. Um, given that I was a school captain, they would often pull me back from certain events um, that I would, would regularly take part of. Um, just things like that, pulling a lot of the workload back uh, that allowed me to focus more on my, my physical health as well as allowing that mental health as well to be at a manageable state. And I, I think that's one of the sort of promising things is that we can see that schools have the capacity to do it because they have the capacity to do it for physical health issues. And so taking those learnings and applying them to the mental health space where if a student needs to take a week out or go to acute care centre to manage their medication, that it is seen exactly the same way as if they're getting kidney dialysis or insulin treatment or something like that. A question from our audience. Can you speak to some of the challenges that face school counsellors working often with limited resources in the public system? I've spent the last, you know, three or four years specifically working with state schools in New South Wales and the department, and we actually published a, a, a big study that we did of um, school counsellors in New South Wales looking at what they spend their time on, what are the barriers, and in particular the barriers to doing new types of care so, and, and I've worked in schools and communities where the same thing, they're too far away from a headspace centre, there's only a small number of schools in the community so you can't change schools. Uh, the school counsellor works across both the primary and secondary. So yes, it's, it's not at all easy and there's often no services for school counsellors to uh, refer out to. And I guess for me, like we've just spent three years designing and developing this online mental health services which is effective, it has effects in the students and the school counsellors like it. But the biggest problem is it's identifying that 18% of the student year body needs intervention. And so if you go any, into any school, you're going to get 18% of that student body screening as being symptomatic for depression or anxiety. And there's no possible way that a school counsellor can follow up with 18% of a year group or even a school. There's just too many students. So... I completely, um, yeah, agree with you that it isn't easy and that there are so many challenges from both capacity um, but also just there's just not enough services for teens and that every school is completely different and so there's no one-size-fits-all. And unfortunately, the research really up until now has been trying to devise a one-size-fits-all and we know it just won't work. Another question from our audience. As a school counsellor, there are sometimes difficulties receiving information and working collaboratively with external health providers. 
Can the panel comment on how to best work around these difficulties? Um, look, one of the things I often find myself saying over and over again when I um, do supervision with school psychologists is, as psychologists, we speak a different language to the school. Yeah, we can work beautifully in a school and, and all those years I had wonderful relationships with, with the staff. However, our job is also to, um, to educate because we have a lot of knowledge about mental health that uh, people in schools typically won't have. So when you talk about sharing of information, yeah, obviously we're bound by confidentiality. So we have to get really wise about what we share and how we share so that it's in a way that enables the, the teaching staff or the GPs or whoever you're talking about, enables them to really understand what the mental health issue is whilst maintaining that young person's confidentiality. And on an individual level, that's really hard. I think as well, um, one of the things we, we talked a little bit about, like with parents, when we interviewed them about um, their levels of comfort with engaging with the school counsellor and with external providers. So, for example, so what I was sort of hearing was that you need to have something formal from the practitioners to kind of get these extra supports but then the practitioners are unwilling to share that so it leaves you in a really tricky spot and one of the things the parents the parents were very reluctant to have school counselors know the conditions um, that their young person or child was experiencing um, particularly if well very much so if the child hadn't um, seen the school counselor before so, for example, if something had come up in the school, it was identified differently, they were seeing someone outside of school, the parents felt it wasn't necessary for the school counsellor to be involved. And so that has implications for adjustments. And one of the main reasons that they didn't want the school counsellor to be involved was around labelling and what that labelling would mean in the school context. And it comes from negative experiences that they've seen or heard about teachers speaking about other children um, in a poor light. And one of the things that the school counsellors had a really difficult time with was, I guess, the level of gossip that occurs in a school setting. And school counsellors seem to be much more highly trained and attuned to what's appropriate to talk about and what's not. And when we were interviewing teachers, they actually found school counsellors very frustrating because school counsellors wouldn't share information and they sort of saw school counsellors as these people who would often set up shop in a school and then not share any of that information. So I think a lot of it comes from the parents and the families in terms of fear of labelling and the implications of what you're going to do with that information and who you might share that information with, and that's built on their own negative experiences seeking help in the past. And so if parents have had these experiences with other children or heard about them, they're really reluctant to get the school counsellor involved in those confidential kind of pieces of information. I'm wondering, Adri, did you experience um, your school liaising with clinicians outside the school and how did that go and how was that achieved? Yeah, um, so my, my school counsellor actually referred me to uh, the oncology team here at the Prince of Wales Hospital, or well, not here, but uh, right next door at the Prince of Wales Hospital and... Uh, uh, booked me in for sessions with their psychologist. Um, and that whole process was, was smooth, to say the least. Um, I was, I guess, grateful of the fact that Ramwick Boys does have a close relationship with the services in the community. 
and um, and that allowed me to to see ex- an external support source of support um, and that also meant them uh, meant my teachers having to negotiate for time off for me to so I can see them um, but entirely it was a very smooth process. And in terms of being spoken about, that sort of Bridie's talking about how people spoke about you, what was your experience around that, the language that was being used and, and how your mental health was being talked about? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say just in my experience, I never ex- um, experienced any kind of gossip that went on in, in my school. Um, but just in terms of the language that was used when speaking about me, I, I mean, it was, I guess, very, very respectful. Um, never really spoken about, like, things that were going on behind the scenes wasn't really anything that I didn't know already, if that makes sense. Um, no decisions were made um, behind the scenes that I wasn't a part of. Um, so there wasn't any kind of gossiping or anything like that. Um, and in terms of the language that we used, I guess... Yeah, like I said, it was anything that was spoken about, spoken, anything that I was a part of um, was something that I was involved in considerably. Um, I'm an occupational therapist, so often we have a slightly different focus in terms of um, when we're working with um, school-aged children. Um, So um, rather than looking at the mental illness itself, we look at its impact on that child's ability to learn. So more of the cognitive issues, the ability to focus and pay attention, to engage in the classroom. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are in terms of um, looking at referrals to other clinicians that can offer advice and recommendations to teachers without necessarily disclosing much about the diagnosis. Um, I think that that... um I think that the problems we've been talking about is around communication and relationships. And um, I think that when there are relationships established and you talked about how that your school had a link with the, you know, hospital so that they knew who to talk, perhaps they'd referred, you know, young people to them before, um, then a lot of that anxiety about trust and how you know, how can we trust this information to be handled sensitively in a way that we would want it to be handled kind of falls away a bit because, in fact, you are talking to someone that you have, you know, trust in. So, um, you know, I would think that um, it must be much easier when you're dealing with parents who aren't alienated from the school, you know, for one reason or another, you know, from their past experience. But sometimes it can also be an opportunity to build bridges with that with that parent so that, you know, if there's, I mean, in my, you know, experience sometimes um, working in the public system, we would actually go with the young person and the family to the school and have a case conference at the school, mm. you know, with the school counsellor and whomever, you know, they wanted to um, uh, bring along with them, sometimes the deputy principal or the year coordinator, so that that would really often break the ice because then there was an opportunity there for everybody just to share information that they were comfortable with and also to make other parties understand what they needed um, from 
us as clinicians or what we needed from them as school counsellors in order to best help the young person. Can I just add, I, I see what you're saying, that what you're talking about the function of the behaviour and its impact in the classroom and, and what you can actually do about it. And I can see that having someone like you bring that to the school rather than, say, the school counsellor, um, it's a bit of a scaffold, isn't it? It's a nice way to get some good functioning happening with someone who's less intimidating, almost like, you know, it's, um, you know, we can look after someone with cancer, but someone with depression's a bit, you know, we, we can't necessarily step up. So I do get what you're saying. What worries me about it, though, is that are we just avoiding the whole mental health thing again? And I think that's what, I mean, to me, that's the ripple that's that's underneath here, that there's so much avoidance and so much unknown and fear around mental health. And, and we're, we're the ones that are happy to talk about it. We're the ones that are committed to reducing the stigma and that are committed to standing up for those young people who are suffering with mental health difficulties. And I don't want to create a further culture where we're sidestepping that. But there's definitely, you know, the research has certainly moved, particularly because of um, the push of the lived experience, to be more about functioning rather than symptom reduction. And this is particularly um, in terms of taking like a, a psychiatric um, insight into actually what are depression symptoms in adolescents and actually how do they manifest. And one of the things that we've been finding in teenagers in particular that although they have, um, you know, a range of threshold in terms of symptoms, they range from nil to minimal all the way to severe, because a, an adolescent's functioning is pretty rudimentary, they do the same thing every day, they go to school five days a week, if they're only sort of mild to sort of early moderately depressed, that's only sort of a couple of days out of a week here and there they're feeling that way. So their functioning really isn't impacted and it's at the threshold. So for a young person, they really notice the impact of their mental illness when their functioning is poor. And so that is the best indicator for them of not only when they're getting unwell but when they're recovering. And so I definitely think there's space for young people and their families to really look at functioning as an early indicator of when they're becoming unwell and also when they're recovering. Another question from our audience. Are there any programs that try and educate staff and students more about mental health and create a positive mental health culture in a school? We do. Black Dog Institute has um, presentations of, for both students, uh, parents, and we've done presentations to school staff. Uh, around uh, sort of some of the mental health literacy. Um, we're actually designing and developing a year advisor training program that can specifically help your advisors to address mental health problems. Uh, in terms of culture change, I mean, that is a really tough one because, and I've seen it done very differently in different schools. I've, I've, I've worked with some really disadvantaged schools and it sort of points to what you were talking about before is that mental health merges into welfare and you're dealing with, if you think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, kids that like we've had work with schools where they don't have any other clothes other than their school uniform. They don't have a fridge in their home. They don't have parents with petrol. Um, so when, you know, you walk in and say, well, we want everyone to spend 10 minutes a week doing this lovely little online program, um, they don't, they can't read. They've got attention issues. So, Yes, there, there's definitely schools where mental health and well-being is very much more around welfare issues. Uh, but then you spread to some schools where I've, I've worked with that they have two school counsellors and they have a permanent well-being phone, not line, 
and the school counsellors man that 24 hours and that if any student in the school has a, well, a wellbeing issue, they can call this number, which is the extreme. of. So, yeah, you get very different, but I've never come across um, a school that has directly outspokenly said that mental health is an issue, but there's plenty of schools that don't sign up to research project or mental health activities. Can I also hop in? I just um, am curious, Bridie, you've talked a bit about technology. I mean, this generation is the first generation to be grown up attached to their mobile phone, and we're often curious about the mental health impacts of that, whether it's, as, as Josie was saying, cyberbullying or whether there's other aspects of that, but also the potential benefits are good things that might come from the technology. So I'm curious, you know, around the panel and maybe, Brave, if you want to kick off, like what your thoughts are around the space of technology and mental health in these young people. Yeah, so the, the key advantages that I identify with technology is, one, um, it's around that barriers to help-seeking that young people are often um, really reluctant to tell anybody how they're feeling, they don't know what to do, so they're they use the internet and therefore it's a very accessible way to reach young people because it's where they are already. Um, the internet, internet in particular is very, we know that you can deliver CBT, we know you can deliver other, other types of therapy with the same effect size through online therapies. And it, I think their biggest advantage for young people is the dip your toe in the water. This is what therapy looks like and sounds like and it's not that scary. Um, and so it's good to kind of get young people um, understanding what therapy is about and what it involves. Um, so there's, there's that aspect of um, online psychological interventions and it also addresses the clinician shortage is that even if we increased the number of trained clinicians in Australia, we could never reach the number of young people who need help. So we have to use other methods and our best bet is going to be some type of online digital intervention. On the flip side, we do know that cyberbullying, social media um, are, are, are problems and they're, they're problems because we don't know what causes them and we don't know the role that pre-existing mental health plays versus your exposure to online um, social media. So, for example, my PhD was about the effects of social media on young people's mental health um, and there was a very small association but in actual fact the most important thing um, the most influential thing in that period of a young person's life was their family so a lot of the uh, issues that we see um, around these kinds of bullying and social media impacts tend to you have to go back to the family and what's happening in the family and that kind of thing but um, in saying that we do have anecdotal reports that you know the young person wasn't having any other mental health issue until the bullying started. And so we, there's definitely more research there to be done around what is it about the technology that perhaps can create more vulnerability in young people. And so we know for body image that overexposure to certain images contributes to the way you feel about yourself. It's not as clear-cut for depression, anxiety and suicide. Um, and so that's we're sort of still looking at those areas and what the research says. Also, addictive gaming is massive. Yeah. 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 So one of the things the research can't determine is are you going online, are you using technology because you're more depressed, so you're feeling down and you're feeling more depressed so you turn to technology, or is the technology making you? So it's that typical bi-directional relationship. They don't know. 
the research doesn't know. And we probably aren't really going to be able to figure that out because everybody now is overexposed, so you can't take it away. Patrick, do you want to speak to how technology has been part of your journey, if at all? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I certainly have a love-hate relationship with uh, technology, with social media. Um, I know when I was first experiencing uh, bouts of anxiety and, and suicidal thoughts, I actually shut off all of my uh, social media accounts and actually restrained uh, myself from going on Facebook or Instagram because of just how that would uh, catalyze a lot of the thoughts that I had. Um, but through my recovery, I found social media to actually be quite a, or technology as a whole, to be a, a valuable tool. Um, when I started university, for example, and I was still experiencing suicidal thoughts to a certain extent, um, I actually accessed uh, eHeadspace, um, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. It's uh, the online counseling service that Headspace provides, um, and it certainly uh, helped me overcome a lot of the uh, help-seeking barriers that Bridie mentioned uh, and the anxiety that can come from actually wanting to seek professional support. Um, so yeah, I've seen both the positives and the negatives of, of technology and, and social media uh, in my journey. Of the CBT self-help programs that they can access online, are there any in particular for teenagers that you would recommend? Yep. So um, the first and foremost is Mood Gym um, and that's been tested. I think it's had 25 randomised controlled trials of Mood Gym. Mood Gym is very much targeted to uh, low mood and anxiety but there's some really, it's five modules and there's a really good module on relationships. So you can actually just say, you know, use the program for the relationships module or whatnot. If you've got a young person um, where anxiety is the, the what you think is the primary condition, um, University of Queensland has the BRAVE online program and BRAVE actually, there's a child version for primary and there's an adolescent version uh, and that works through... Um, things for anxiety and there's also uh, like a parent component to it. Um, another one is eCouch. Uh, that's also by the Australian National University. That has some uh, stuff also around grief and loss, um, which can be useful with sort of family breakdown, but it also targets um, anxiety uh, and depression. Um, they're probably the three that are mainly primarily targeted at young people. Yeah. I think it's important to say that these can be used, you know, by themselves, but also as adjuncts to face-to-face, -to -face, you know, therapy. So, uh, you know, we strongly encourage clinicians to recommend these, um, even if they're going to, you know, be seeing the young person themselves or because it helps provide um, that kind of link with, with, with the work of, you know, of dealing with your depression or your anxiety in between your sessions and can often feel like it's a, a gift from, you know, from the clinician or yeah. your teacher or what have you that, you know, so you're using the relationship um, as well um, through recommending those kinds of programs and arranging to check up with the young person around how they've gone with it and what they found helpful and what they didn't find helpful. Yeah, and another really neat one actually is we've just relaunched the Bite Back uh, website and this has a really cool six weeks challenge and, and that's all uh, based on positive psychology. And so rather than um, targeting like, you know, the low mood and the more clinical kind of symptoms, this is very much about the positive psychology, resilience, strengths-based. And so 
I think that's probably going to have a nice uptake, um, particularly for students who may be sub-threshold. Um, and that has a really neat six-week challenge, which is about using the principles of positive psychology and they can win gift vouchers and those kinds of things as they work through the six weeks. And that's something that you can do with a young person in between, individually, sorry, or you can implement um, at a classroom level or even at a year grade level. Um, and so that's probably another one um, to check out. And a final question from our audience tonight. To what degree do you think parents are a barrier to mental health programs in schools? Yeah, I, I actually, when I first started working in this area, thought that parents were going to be a bigger barrier than they were. And I think it's a myth that parents are anti-mental health. And so, and I have a couple of numbers to back this up. So in the uh, school counsellor survey that we did, overwhelmingly school counsellors report that their interactions with parents are very positive and not negative. Um, and so really the school counsellors didn't really need any more help or support in interacting it, interacting with parents. Um, when I, we did this big trial, in, we did it in 22 schools, it had over 1,800 youth, um, and I had one parent uh, say that they, they didn't want their child to participate because they just couldn't handle knowing what was going on right now. So out of nearly 2,000 parents, one is basically non non-effect. So we didn't get an, up, an uproar from parents and we've had a lot of parent feedback say, thank you so much. There were things I suspected were going on with my child, but I didn't have anybody else to kind of validate this, you know. And so I think parents all of the time feel really stuck around what they can do as well. I'm mindful of the time. We're going to need to finish up even though we could keep talking the rest of the evening. But thank you so much for your company tonight. And please join me in thanking our wonderful panel. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.